Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by NYU associate professor, data journalist, AI researcher, and author, Meredith Broussard. We discuss her book, Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World, where she sheds light on how racism plays a part in the current state of AI. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited to introduce to you Meredith Broussard, our guest this week. You are a professor at NYU and also an author of a gorgeous book, which is Artificial Unintelligence, which I live for. Welcome. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. I've I don't think I've ever had a professor from NYU. I'm enthralled. I'm nervous. I'm NYU is like a major school, honey. She's like a Major university. Well, you can come to class anytime. Oh my gosh, is that a thing where you observe? You can come like, um, what's that called when you come observe a class? It's like a thing. Isn't that like a thing that people do where they go like observe classes? Yeah, yeah, it has a name. It's like a audit. It's yes, an audit. An audit. I'm nailing it. All right, you can come audit my data journalism class anytime. Really? Yeah, it'd be fun. Okay, I'll, like I'm okay. Focus. I was imagining like an all black outfit. A really sleek hair, like something sleek, something like really Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich. Like, I'm going to university to Ooh. learn about this water. You oh, know. that would be lovely. I digress. So, Artificial Unintelligence is a book about algorithm bias. Yeah, it's a book about the inner workings and the outer limits of technology. And I wrote it because there's a lot of confusion out there about what computers do and don't do. And there's an idea that I talk about in the book called techno-chauvinism, the idea that computers are always superior to humans. And I think it's time to really examine that bias, that knee-jerk reaction that we have that, oh, we need to always use computers because always using computers is better. And we need to think more about what is the right tool for the task? Because sometimes the right tool for the task is a computer, and sometimes it's something simple like a book in the hands of a child. Oh, okay. So one example is letting a kid use their imagination in terms of a book instead of, like, opting for a computer. What's, like, another example where we shouldn't be so... Or we could opt to not be so tech-centric? Well, because I'm a professor, I really think about this a lot in in terms of education. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is an investigation that I did, uh, a computational journalism investigation, where I asked the question, do the kids in Philadelphia public schools have the books that they would need in order to learn the material that's on the state-mandated standardized tests. You know, because people are all worked up about standardized tests nowadays, and in our large urban public school districts, kids are not passing the tests. So I discovered that the same people who write the books write the tests. And originally I thought, oh, well, I I used to be a test prep teacher, so, like, I'm going to go in, I'm going to write, like, some amazing computational system that is going to allow kids to just, like, do better. And then I realized, like, oh, wait, you don't actually need to do that. All you need to do is give the kid the book because the book has the material that you would need. So what did you find? Well, I found that, no surprise, Philadelphia public schools didn't even have vaguely the number of books that they would need in order to get the kids to pass the tests. And moreover, they didn't have enough money in the budget 
to buy the books. Does that mean that they just had like everything like on computer or iPad and they were just like, we'll just read it there? Oh, no, 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 no. Not even close. So there was this this very confusing thing that happened where people were so excited about the idea of using technology in the classroom that they were spending all this money on technology and doing that really badly. And they were also shortchanging the traditional methods. Because they were replacing it with the technology. So like, oh, we don't need to because it's... Exactly. So that's techno-chauvinism. Oh, yes, Queen. You are really a professor, honey, bringing it back. Like, finishing a point, honey. I'm nailing it. So that's techno-chauvinism is like, like leaning into computers, like choosing computers when like, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's also about doing it badly. Right? Like, you can absolutely replace uh, paper processes or human processes with computer processes as long as you also have the the low-tech options available, say, for people who uh, can't access the computational options. Um, but too often, the computer systems are used to perpetuate bias or in the case of something like uh, public assistance. The public assistance systems are automated, and the automation is actually used to edge people out of being able to access benefits. Okay, let's. Okay, so the automation systems used in, like, in systems for people to gain benefits are used to like perpetuate bias. Exactly. There's a really great book by Virginia Eubanks called Automating Inequality. And in it, she writes about how automated systems are used to profile, police, and punish the poor. So, for example, uh, there is uh, there's a situation that she talks about where uh, caseworkers used to have a drawer full of cash. And so if you walked in and you were a young mother who was at the end of the month and you didn't have enough cash to buy diapers and formula for your baby, the caseworker would know who you were and the caseworker would be able to just reach into the drawer and like give you, you know, 10 bucks, 20 bucks to buy diapers and formula for your baby. And it would tide you over until the end of the month when your, uh, when your check came in. But now we have these automated systems where people have to just jump through so many hurdles to access benefits that often people just give up in the face of bureaucracy because I mean, what are you going to do? Like, spend your entire afternoon, like, battling the computer system? Like, people have people have lives, and it can just, it can feel like it's so insurmountable to, to deal with this big anonymous computer system that you just go without. And that's not actually a better system. Yeah, I mean, and that's happened in the face, or in a lot of service, like, service providing things like whether it's like accessing healthcare or accessing assistance or educational things. So you are a professor of data journalism. Data journalism. So what does that look like? You I mean you're a professor so that means you're like a literal doctor of like information of that field. So like what did how did you study to become that? So I started— Actually, what did you study? I'm so sorry. Not how, because obviously you had to go to school for like 10,000 years. Like, yes, and you're like very, very smart. <laughs> so I started my career as a computer scientist, and then I quit to become a journalist. 
And the reason I quit computer science is I couldn't deal with the sexism. And so journalism is a much friendlier place to be female. Oh, I'm gagged. I love that answer and didn't expect it. And I love that story. Like, I mean, I love a Frank moment. Couldn't handle the... the flip the table. You guys, I was just making a face like I want to like flip the table. Like... Sexism and the binary make me so mad. It makes me want to throw a table out the window sometimes. But I love it when people call it out. So frankly, it makes me really inspired because like speaker truths are power queen. Yes. Mm -hmm. So then you're like, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to like go study journalism. Interesting. We don't hear that that many times. Like a computer scientist becoming a journalist. Well, also, the thing is that computer scientists make like 10 times as much money as journalists. So that's one of the reasons people don't do it. Uh Major. I mean, pocketbooks are like a thing. Everyone mm -hmm. does like, yeah, that's that's a thing. So that takes you to journalism. So you go start studying journalism, which I th I think that's like a whole other podcast. Like, how do you become a journalism or how do you like what's journalism school like? Because like it's like integrity. It's like learning to interview. It's like using your like journalism. Tell me, like in a nutshell. It's so fun going to journalism school. Uh, I think that more people should go to journalism school, obviously because I teach at a journalism school. Uh, but we we do everything. We do how to interview. We do how to research. Uh, so one of my favorite classes that I teach is called Research for Writers, and it's about doing deep dives into archives and how do you uh, – you know, how do you sit in a room with somebody and look into their eyes and talk to them and have a really meaningful interaction? But then we also talk about ethics and we talk about the big issues of the day and we talk about science. And so you just get to do this incredible range of things as a journalist. And so my particular brand of journalism uh, is kind of attuned to social justice issues. So what I do as a data journalist is I find stories and numbers, and I use numbers to tell stories. And then because I have this background in computer science, I can also write code. So I can write code in order to commit acts of investigative journalism. You're kind of like the Brene Brown of, like, numbers, science, journalism, and storytelling. That is the biggest compliment you could possibly give me. Thank you. That's like, that's, I mean, we love, like, oh, love. Hey, like, wow, major. Yes. yes. So that's major. So basically, and then, so what you're saying is, is that as, like, kind of looping all that together, I'm trying, is like, that as tech has been introduced into a lot of service things, like whether it's like access to assistance for education, healthcare, public health, like food, all sorts of, like, medical food assistance, like social services things. As tech has been introduced, it's actually like been introduced to like prevent people from getting the health or the, the care that they need. Yeah, the narrative about tech has always been that, oh, tech is so great. But as a journalist, you're always looking for, okay, where is it maybe not so great as well? So I think we may need a more balanced narrative about technology. Sometimes it's really fantastic, and sometimes it's really terrible. And we need to report on it the same way that we report on anything else. right? So a lot of tech journalism is just about, oh, the new iPhone is coming out and so great. I'm way more interested in something like how is technology being able to or being used to prevent people from accessing benefits? How is technology uh, being used at airports to uh, persecute uh, people who are non-binary? Um, how is uh, 
you know, how are databases being leveraged to uh, purge voters uh, as part of a uh, as part of a scheme to literally suppress the vote? Yes, like suppress yes. like the dem- like the democratic will of the people. So let's break that down. So at at, our, at airports, there is facial recognition technology that like we don't even see, right? Like, because isn't it just like like checks you in when you're walking in and out of doors and stuff. Well, let's talk about facial recognition technology because this is a whole can of worms and facial recognition technology is really being uh it's being weaponized nowadays. So people sometimes think that facial recognition technology is really cool and because it's really cool, we should just use it for everything. Can I tell you, did you see the minority report with Tom Cruise back in like the early 2000s yes. with those twins? Prescient. Or, excuse me, not the twins, the triplets. Who says that? Ugh, Jonathan. That facial recognition thing where they scan your eyes in the malls and stuff, that I've been scared of this facial recognition since 2000 and whatever that movie came out in. With with good cause. You are very smart to be scared of it. Um, so there is a uh, there's this proposal to put facial recognition in uh, into public housing uh, in order to to like affect the locks on people's apartment. Like you would have to use your face to unlock the front door of your apartment in public housing. Why? In Massachusetts. Exactly. In Massachusetts? It's again, it's techno chauvinism. But idea- is that being that's being proposed in where? Well, so it is uh it was being proposed, it worked badly. Uh and now there's a bill saying we need to prohibit this. Oh, got it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so Representative Yvette Clark is doing some really interesting work around uh, facial recognition and making sure that it's not being used inappropriately. So she has a bill uh, called the Algorithmic Accountability Act that is really groundbreaking. I think she proposed it with Cory Booker. And uh, it's really groundbreaking work that says that if algorithms are being used to make decisions on people's behalf, these algorithms need to be transparent and we need to be able to audit these algorithms. Because an algorithm gets put, how does an algorithm get put in place? Like for any 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 set of anything? Such a good question. Okay, so facial recognition runs based on algorithms. And an algorithm is basically a recipe. It's a set of steps for completing a computational process. Okay, you said computational like six times. I've been trying to be like, you're interviewing a professor. Be fucking cool, Jonathan. What does computational mean? I can ask a question. That is a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Uh, So one of the things I do in the book is I break down exactly what are we talking about when we talk about using a computer? Because often we talk about things like AI or computation without really understanding what we're talking about. So like, let's talk about what a computer does. A computer literally computes. It just does math. It's a machine for doing math. And actually, I brought a computer with me. Do you want to see it? Yeah. Okay. I brought a prop. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll shoot this in the uh, yes yes yes. It's afterward. really good content. It's really good content. Okay. But it's in a really fierce bag. Thank you. Yes. Oh my god! Oh my god! What is it? What's in there? All right. So here I have a computer. 
This is a Raspberry Pi computer. I'm going to pass it over to you oh. so you can. Uh, is it what's in my phone? It. it is a lot like what's in your phone. So when we actually look at what a computer looks like, it demystifies it a lot. So what I recommend is taking an old computer that you have sitting around your house and like pop the case open and look at it and look at the places where the ports go. At. So like see the uh, the round bit. Right there on the side. That's where the power goes in. Oh, interest. Yeah. Okay, this is like the best content for our video. I'm. This is like, I've never had someone give me such good content for the video. I'm so excited. We're going to take a really quick break. Good. We're going to have a few little baby commercials. And then we'll be right back with more uh, Professor Meredith Broussard right after this. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. Okay, back to computation. Computation is... Is computing. It's doing math. So what this uh, what this computing machine we have in front of you is, is it is a machine for doing math. So everything that we do with a computer ultimately comes down to doing math. Uh, when you do image recognition on a computer, what you're doing is you're taking... Uh, you're taking the image from the real world and it gets translated into a grid. The grid is made up of pixels. So, you know, when you buy a camera, it tells you how many megapixels it is. Yeah. Like, that's what is the resolution. So, it's like how many pixels like are Like, how in the many grid. little spots can live on that square. Exactly. And so, when you do image recognition, it's really about looking at that grid and saying, does this shape on this grid? match, more or less, mathematically, the shape in the grid that is already in my memory. So when it comes to facial recognition, then it inherently would have to be racist, wouldn't it? Exactly. So facial recognition systems generally are better at recognizing light skin than they are at recognizing dark skin. And they're generally better at recognizing men than they are at recognizing women. And they also don't take into account non-binary individuals at all. Uh, also, people with uh, with disabilities often have trouble being recognized as human by facial recognition systems. Uh, so, for example, I, I had a student who had a condition where he didn't uh, he didn't have eyeballs, mm. and so what the facial recognition systems are looking for is they're looking for shapes that look like conventional eyeballs. I just, I'm left speechless from thinking about what it is to live with with living without eyeballs. Like mm-hmm. I just, you, I just don't even think about it. it like yeah. it took me that many seconds to um, get a sentence together. Mm-hmm. Good for me. Yeah. Uh, not I mean, so there's good. lots of there's lots of ways of existing in the world, right? Like there are all kinds of ways of existing that I haven't even thought of. Um, but the creators of these computational systems also have not thought of these different ways of existing in the world, and. That's a kind of bias, you know. I so somebody, I somebody I know who's uh, who's visually impaired. Um, she has a uh, a condition where her her eyeballs kind of don't focus; they're kind of doing yeah. stuff. And I so if she goes and does one of these uh, job interview. Video job interviews, what the video job interview software is looking for is they're looking for somebody who maintains eye contact. Mm. Well, if you have a disability, that means that you're not 
maintaining yeah. eye contact, you're automatically going to get kicked out by this algorithm. So because algorithms are, as technology is introduced to so many different facets of how we interact with life, because it really does permeate like how, I mean, I when you were talking about it initially, it made me think about the Affordable Care Act and how confusing that was for me as like a 26-year-old, like when that first came out, I was like, that whole navigating that whole system was like so, at least for me personally in California, it was like overwhelming. I didn't really understand it. Yeah. And I mean, and for all of like the good, and I understand like, you know, how important having insurance is, um, but it was very difficult to navigate. And, and technology has permeated so many interactions and in how we navigate so many things. But it's like that saying of like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's like, I don't think, I don't think that these scientists intend when they start off making these to be, I mean, I would imagine that people be like, how do we serve more people? Like, how do we help more people? But then in the, in so doing, like, it gets bad or no. It's just like a systematic way to like oppress people, people from being able to gain the access that they need. Because it was like really confusing for me to sign up for health insurance. Now I think I really couldn't figure it out. Yeah, because it was really badly designed, the system. And so I would argue that badly designed technology is not better than than like the old system of filling out a paper form. Like most people can handle filling out a paper form, but when you have to use this system, this system on the internet that crashes all the time and loses your information and then it's really confusing and you can't come back to it and complete it later. And getting like, your passwords and the it was a lot. Yeah. It's kind of a lot. And so And like written in like especially if it's in terms of healthcare, it's like written in a jargon that's like not it's like literally not comprehend or like not comprehensible. And like exactly. I'm not someone who I mean I can understand most things. You're like, a smart person. Like you're you should be able to sign up for healthcare. Well, I think identifying anyone's face based on, like, how many pixels it takes up or, like, the measurements of stuff, that is giving me big brother. It's giving me it's giving me all sorts of scary things. Yeah. Agita overall. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, so let's, uh, let's, take, uh, let's take a small piece of that. Let's go back to our algorithms biased is AI racist. Techno-chauvinism tells us that algorithms are somehow better or more objective than people. And that's completely wrong. Okay? Because we understand nuance. We understand nuance. And computer programs are created by people. And people have unconscious bias. Like, we're all working on our unconscious bias. We're all trying to become better people. But our unconscious bias... Like, we can't see it because it's unconscious, right? And so what we do is we embed our unconscious biases in the technology that we create. And so the world that we had before technology was, you know, getting more egalitarian. But then we said, oh, we're going to, uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to replace all the existing systems with technical systems. And so then... That kind of happened in the 90s, like, as the internet was coming up, and it just was all kind of, like, a gold rush of, like, just internet age things. Exactly. And people said things like, oh, we're we're just going to, like, make the world better by doing everything with a computer now. And, you know, there are so many things in the world that you can do better on computers, but not everything. So we've we've had the internet era for 20 years now, and so we really need to be more deliberate 
about our decisions. And we also need to recognize that doing things on the computer is not always faster, cheaper, and better. Often, it's far more expensive and time-consuming. So I see this in my data journalism work. Uh, People often assume that data journalists are going to be able to do things uh, really fast and really cheap because they're using a computer. Like, oh, you just buy the computer and then just, like, you know, make the journalist use the computer and then it's just cheaper. But it's exactly the opposite. So doing a big data journalism investigation, you need more people than you do for a traditional investigation. You need more time, and it's really, really expensive. So Because you have to double-check all the work of all these computers that can do all this work really fast, and you have to do it, like, by hand— but you can actually like see the issues more readily. Well, we have to build the code, right? So when you uh, when you build code in order to um, audit algorithms. Oh. Yeah. So what we do as data journalists is we often build code in order to audit the algorithms that are being used to make decisions on our behalf. Uh, so there's a uh, there's a very famous investigation by Julia Angwin, who was then at ProPublica. Uh, if you're not reading ProPublica, you absolutely should be. Do they have an app, honey? What do they have? An app? I don't know if they Gotta have get an, an app. app. But they broke that one story about those hideous, um, the Border Patrol hideous Facebook group. Yep. Yep, exactly. They have done all kinds of groundbreaking work. Yeah, we love ProPublica. They're fantastic. And the really groundbreaking computational journalism story they did under Julia Engwin was uh, they discovered that there was this algorithm called Compass that was being used to, quote-unquote, predict whether people would reoffend after they were uh, after they were arrested. And so these uh, risk scores, future risk scores, were being given to judges so judges could uh, use the risk scores to try and um, make decisions about whether people were going to get released. Wow. And the thing is, the algorithm was biased against Black people. I mean, it's shocking that that program was even created. Like, why would that even be put in place? I mean, isn't there, like— probation officers like aren't there supposed to be people who work with people like when you get out of like incarceration like hopefully not reoffend and stuff like but through like supportive means because like you actually want to help like rehabilitate yeah i mean our 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 penal system overall needs like a giant amount of of help like we need we really need to confront the mass incarceration problem but and we where, need to talk about the role of computation in that but so the yeah where is algorithm- the role of computation yeah because i mean i'm mass incarceration like the the max or the minimum sentencing of the 1994 laws and the and especially like the incarceration of like nonviolent drug offenders and especially how it's un hugely hugely impacted people of color specifically like in marijuana offenses that have like it's ruined people's lives i'm i think the and like the the pockets that it's lying to people to like put people in jail forever when really it's like addiction that we're fighting, like not these people. So how does computation have, how does that interact with the mass incarceration issue? So let's talk about the process Uh, and bear with me for a second because uh, it's not always sexy to talk about process, but this is one of the things that you think about as a data journalist because you have to look at every step in order to figure out what's going wrong. So you think about the process, somebody gets arrested and they get taken to the precinct, and then uh, there's a there's a bail hearing, there's a trial, there's a sentence that you can serve, and then there's probation. So at every step of the way, uh, there are different ways that you can use computers. And so 
people have been thinking for a long time, oh, hey, how can we use computers to make uh, these processes more efficient? Because this this mania for efficiency is you know, part of capitalism. And for at least 20 years now, people have been thinking about ways we can use computers to make processes more efficient. So the compass algorithm came in at the point where uh, judges were looking at people who had been arrested and they could use the compass algorithm to make a decision about, okay, is this person a flight risk for bail? Or uh, is this person likely to reoffend? If they're likely to reoffend, then, okay, well, we should probably give them a longer sentence. Now, the compass algorithm was biased against black people. Like there was no way mathematically for it to treat black defendants and white defendants fairly. And so if you were using these compass scores to decide on somebody's sentence, for example, as a judge, then you were going to give black people longer sentences because it looked like, according to this algorithm, that they were more likely to reoffend. And this is like a nationally used program? Everywhere. And so one of the things that ProPublica did— because that's a really good—well, I hate to use this, like, fucked up situation as a cliffhanger, but we do just coincidentally have to take a break. So we're going to listen to a few commercials. We'll be right back with more Meredith Broussard right after the break. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have NYU Associate Professor Meredith Broussard, data journalist, AI researcher, and author of Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. I hope I can find my hair after this episode because you're really blowing it back. But, like, (laughs) I appreciate that. So, basically, this compass algorithm was something that the journalist whose name is... Julia Angwin. Julia Angwin did, and basically found that nationally there was this, like, horrific algorithm that was used, like, in the computer databases, like, across the country for judges to reassign... or for judges to assign sentencing, which was... I'm, like, not surprised, but I'm... sad, shocked... Yeah, tell me about it. Tell me more. Well, so we can actually use this uh, this compass situation as a lens for thinking about other it, places where this might be happening. Is it still in use, this compass thing? God, I don't know. Um, definitely a lot of places have, uh, have severed their ties. Um, but I know in Philadelphia last year, they were trying to put in a similar system. I mean, this, this compass system was not unique. Like, there are lots of people who are out there trying to get more computation used in uh, in the justice system. Well, anything that would make it faster, because at the end of the day, whether it's privately owned, the, the prison, or if it's publicly owned, isn't it in their interest to incarcerate like, more people? Because doesn't that put more on their bottom line? Exactly. So any way to, like, make the system for streamlining, putting people in their facility, they're going to be in favor of in the name of, like, efficiency. Exactly. Exactly. You are now thinking like a data journalist. So how do we, do we just need more reporting on this problem and how computers actually like make the problem mass incarceration worse? We do. Uh, We need to have more journalists. 
Uh, we need to uh, pay them really well. So we have a problem in data journalism where uh, people will get a lot of technical skills in the newsroom, um, but then they'll leave for industry because they can get paid more uh, working for Facebook than they can, you know, working for uh, the Washington Post. And so that's a problem. Uh, and we should also think about that issue on the K-12 through education side. We need to pay teachers more. Uh, because right now, teaching is a very low-paid profession. If we want people to be really, uh, really well-educated about uh, the sort of sophisticated computational issues in society nowadays, we need to infuse that through the K-12 through education system. And so we need to uh, pay our teachers more so we can keep teachers in, in public schools and private schools. But so— how do people how do people of color and people who are um marginalized by this algorithm bias rise above like this world isn't getting like any less technologically integrated so because we're already so immersed in it like what can people do to try to um, get some leverage or some like power in the situation I think that people can push back against techno chauvinism people can say no I don't think that we need facial recognition at airports. I don't think that we need facial recognition for people to get into their houses. Uh, I don't think that, you know, a self-driving car is better than a car driven by a person. We can we can kind of chip away at this at this bias. Self-driving cars is a major one. Oh, well, please, let's talk about self-driving cars. Yeah. All right. So First of all, self-driving cars do not work as well as the marketers would like you to believe. They are not coming anytime soon. Uh, I've been saying this for years, and there was just a big article in the New York Times about it this week. I was like, yes, finally the Times is catching up. Uh, So they don't work. And one of the things I did in the book is I did a really deep dive into the code and the data used to create self-driving cars. Because actually the first time I rode in a self-driving car was in about 2006. And it almost killed me. Almost killed me. It was terrifying. So I already did not really trust that these, like, kind of crazy engineers could actually make something that would not kill people. Uh, And as I learned more about the code inside self-driving cars and I thought about the unconscious bias embedded in computational systems, I, I realized that the problem of who gets recognized as human by AI systems, by computer systems, is really an acute problem in self-driving cars. Because the image recognition used in a self-driving car is the same as the image recognition that's used in a video game system, which is really, really similar to the image recognition that's used in, say, a soap dispenser. Okay, and have you seen the viral video about the racist soap dispenser? No. All right, so a white guy comes up and puts his hand under the automatic soap dispenser in a men's room, and uh, the soap comes out. And then a guy with dark skin comes up, puts his hand under, and it doesn't work. And you might think, all right, well, maybe the soap dispenser just broke, right? But no, the guy with dark skin takes a white paper towel and puts it under the soap dispenser, and it works. And then he puts his hand under, and it doesn't work. Okay, so something as simple as a soap dispenser— Okay, like what was wrong with the soap dispenser where you like pump it? Okay. And so right. 
like it just it doesn't make sense to me sometimes that people are trying to replace perfectly good technology with like technology doesn't work. Um, and I don't think that the creators of the soap dispenser said to themselves, oh, I'm going to make a racist soap dispenser. I think that they were a very homogeneous group of people with light skin. And they said, oh, it works for me. It must work for everybody. And so that is a kind of unconscious bias. But in technology, that gets perpetuated. So the soap dispenser technology is the same as the technology in the video game systems, which are better at recognizing people with lighter skin than people with darker skin. Okay, we've known this for years. And then that's the same technology that gets embedded in self-driving cars, right? Because it's cumulative. So let's think about who is going to get recognized as human by self-driving cars and who is not? And is there going to be a disproportionate impact? This makes me think about when we interviewed Melinda Gates and she wrote a book called um, The Moment of Lift and it's about empowering women. And like, when you think about the statistics of Silicon Valley and so many tech companies and it's like so disproportionately white men. And when you were saying that the reason that you left computer science in the beginning was because the sexism situation is so bad. And when you have all of these algorithms and all of this technology written by mostly white men, it is going to lack an amount of sensitivity and awareness because the population isn't white men. And actually, increasingly, it's becoming less so. So we'll be seeing ourselves like less and less reflected. And it's actually a way that like the patriarchy can continue to flex its muscle because they are staffing it so thoroughly. That's why we need more diversity so much in tech. Absolutely. So Melinda Gates actually said this incredibly interesting thing one time. She was talking about the Apple Watch and how it launched with all of these health features, but it didn't have a period tracker. And she was like, listen, like if you had had more women on the team, somebody might have noticed that, hey, like, if you're releasing a device that's supposed to have health tracking, like you should have a period tracker as a default as opposed to like having to put it on. For sure. Yeah. It's a literally at least half the people. Half the people. Yeah. 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 Like, duh. Yeah. So how can we – so how can we do better? Like is there anyone doing any better or do we really just like need so much more journalists to start to shed more light on this? We need so many more journalists. Uh, we need to have conversations like this. We need to just admit that when we're, when we're creating technology, we're not just doing math. Uh, the technology is not the right solution for every social problem. I. Uh, and we need to push back against uh, against decisions that are that are foolish okay. around technology. Two questions, and then I think we'll probably be at the end. One: Is there anyone, any computer scientist, trying to like integrate any more of that nuance into their tech, or no? Like, can we? Is it possible? So this is uh, that's a really good question, and this is a good time for. Uh, kind of blossoming of interest in these issues. Uh, there's a very robust conversation going on around AI ethics, around computational ethics, uh, and about the role of technology in society. Uh, so a couple of resources that I really like. Um, I mentioned Virginia Eubank's book, Programmed Inequality. Uh, there's also a book by Ruha Benjamin called Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code. Interest. 
Yes, it's fascinating. Definitely pick it up. Uh, there's a book by Sophia Noble called Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Perpetuate Racism. So we can, we can educate ourselves about uh, how racism, sexism, ableism, classism, how all these things are embedded in our computational systems and how we can build better, more inclusive technology systems. Uh, one really simple thing that we can do to start is to uh, build technology using more diverse teams. That's the thing that it screams out the most is that we need like more, because what you make is so, who is behind the making of the product is so reflected in the product itself. I, like that's across the board. I also realized that I have like an extra question. One, or it's this one. So like, in ter- you know, like the whole movies of like, like, did you see that one with the Hillary Swank where, like, Mother on Netflix where, like, the robot, like, it's like a post-apocalyptic world where, like, where we're, like, roamed by robots. It's like a scare, scare robot world. I sometimes can't watch robot movies because they make me too crazy. So, like, as someone who's, like, a computer science expert slash journalism expert, like, I don't need to be scared of killer robots, right? Like, ugh. You so do not need to be scared of killer robots. Yeah. I... Uh, so A, the killer robots are not coming. B, nobody is ever going to make a computer that thinks like a human or uh, or like replaces a human. Uh, and also, likely, the computers are not coming for your job. Why? On question or on statement two and three. <laughs> I feel like I need to write these down. To, well, like, the one, unpack. the second one was like, why? Yeah, unpack for me, please. Mm-hmm. Why? Why aren't we replacing ones that are more human? Like, because isn't that a goal to by incorporating the nuance? Like, wouldn't that be part of making it more human? Here's the thing: if you want to create something in your own image, have a baby. Mm, I don't want to do that. Well, then I think you're probably going to be want okay to have know? a cat foundation. There we go. Yeah. Okay? And the cats are going to do, like, their own wonderful cat thing. But it's really foolish to try and make a machine that's, like, a person because we can already make people. Like, we already know how to do that. Oh, I get what you're saying. But, however, however, and I think we can agree, while people can be great, people can also suck. Oh, So definitely. wouldn't that be fun if you could make your own person that was, like— yeah, see, I feel like I should write the next robot movie. I would probably, it would probably be I so chic. I would definitely chic. come and watch your robot movie. There'd be gymnastics. There'd be probably rhythmic gymnastics. <gasps> there would be so that much. That would be amazing. Wait, wow. is that the one with the ribbons? Yes, and the baton. That's my favorite. The batons and the, like, maraca-looking things and oh the ball God. and the hula hoop. So my ultimate question was this, and this is really pertinent to artificial intelligence, which everyone should really read um, and know, but it's like, how can we push back against this tech chauvinism? I think one of the things that we can start with is we can start with being really clear about the term artificial intelligence, right? So we get really confused between Hollywood images of AI and real images of AI. So everything you hear from Hollywood, like, you know, the Terminator or the Hillary Swank robot or Westworld, all that stuff, it's totally imaginary. Mm-hmm. And so that falls into a category we call general artificial intelligence. Uh, the singularity also falls into that and uh, any kind of robot apocalypse. Yes. And then there's what's actually real, which is what we call narrow artificial intelligence. And interestingly, the kind of AI that 
is out there in the world right now is something called machine learning, which sounds like it's killer robots, but actually it's a bad name because it's just statistics. It's computational statistics on steroids. So machine learning is a kind of narrow AI. It's real. So general AI is imaginary. Narrow AI is real. Machine learning is narrow AI. And it's just math. It's this, like, gorgeously complicated, beautiful math, but it's just math. But narrow AI would in, would impact voting, mm-hmm. incarceration, mm-hmm. health Facial ca- recognition. Facial recognition, health care, even in terms— um, Education. Education. Yeah, people are trying to uh, trying to figure out ways to use machine learning and education. Also the environment. Like, yep. I was just, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about Chernobyl. Like, I was, like, freaking, like, that was a lot of, that's all computation and math mm-hmm. and scare, scare yep. stuff. That was, wow, you got, or, like, people, if you haven't watched, uh, if you have not watched Chernobyl, wow. Investigative. Journalism. Wow. I'm going to go watch it tonight. It's you'll probably finish all five episodes. I believe it. It's it's major. So, but basically pushing back against the tech. What's it called? What's that gorgeous title again? Techno tech techno chauvinism. Yeah, techno chauvinism. The idea that tech is superior to people stuff. Right. Like we need we need more nuance. Think about what is the right tool for the task. Sometimes it's a computer. Sometimes it's not, and it's not a competition. And it's not because there's like basically enough room. There is. It's such a wide, wide world. There's plenty of room for everybody. Okay. Um, oh, have I missed anything? It's like time to wrap. But it's like, what is there any, like, what do we need to know? What did I, is there like, it, like yoga session time at the end of the podcast where it's like, did I miss anything? Oh, what do you yoga wanna, what session. Do you, like, what do you, yeah, with the yoga session of AI and AI policing and, 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 and racism within AI. Like, what, is there anything? I, I mean, I feel like what I hear is like the need for diversity in in computer science, in journalism, and in this research. Exactly. Exactly. And really what I what I want people to take away from this conversation, what I want people to take away from the book is a sense of power. A sense that these are not big, complicated, abstract ideas that are totally inaccessible. They are big, complicated, abstract ideas that uh, that are well within your power to understand. And so I really care about people having greater computational literacy so that people can be empowered to uh, to fight for social justice, right? to push back against ways that computers are weaponized against, uh, you know, say, communities of color. Um, I want people to feel like they're in charge of their destiny, and you don't have to just sit back and let technology make the decision, or you don't have to sit back and kind of let these things happen to you because it's embedded in technology, that you have choice, you have agency. Yes, agency. Yes, choice. Let's increase our computational literacy right now on some content on our Instagram feed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh. 
You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Benes. My guest this week was Meredith Broussard. You'll find links to Meredith's socials in this episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJBN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Um, and honeys, introduce a friend. Show them how to subscribe. Uh, podcasts are a wonderful world and we want everyone to be in them. Getting Curious is produced by Emily Bosick, Julie Carrillo, Ray Ellis, Harry Nelson, and Colin Anderson. 